Um, this is Mark 3, 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, all. How are you today? It's one, one person. It's good. Okay. All right. You and me, we're doing all right then, huh? Um, just going to do that. Um, my name's Josh Keller. Um, uh, one of the pastors at All Saints. Um, most of you all know that, but I like to always take the opportunity when I am here just to convey from the session at All Saints how thankful we are for you, how we pray for you earnestly, grateful for the work that you are doing for God, for his kingdom, for the gospel in this part of Austin. And um, I want you to know how earnestly um, we think of you and pray for you, and I wanted to convey that from the session at All Saints to you all. Many of you know that already, but... You never take up an oppor- pass an opportunity to do that. Um, I know last week Jordan was here as well, and um, I know that he talked about the earlier passage in Mark chapter 2 and the question of fasting and whether or not the disciples should fast as the Pharisees expected them to. And I think Jordan talked to you about why um, when the bridegroom is in town, there is no fasting. It's feast time. And when the new kingdom of God is broken in, it's new wine, and you need new wineskins. Well, here in Mark chapter 3, we're talking about a new reality breaking in, and a new conflict between the Pharisees. It's not about fasting, but it's about the Sabbath. And so this morning, I'm just going to hit three things. The spectacle of rightness, Christ the righteous, and a substantial righteousness. So will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness we have in him. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my hearts and the hearts of all of us here would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, I ran across two different things talking about our online discourse. And is this microphone the one that keeps popping? Is Is that me? Is that me? Is that kind of irritating? It's irritating to me, but if you guys, if that's fine, maybe I'll just do this. Will that work? I've kind of got a loud voice, and so that'll be, that'll be fine. How about that? Is this microphone on? Do I need to turn it on? Graham, tell me what to do here. I'm feeling... It's good? Okay. All right, how about that? Yeah, we're good? Okay. So I ran across two things this past week speaking about our online discourse and how it relates to justice and rightness. The first one was an NPR podcast called Invisibilia. The podcast name was The Call Out, which talked about, it really chronicled our social media call-out culture and really the subsequent fallout. Then the second was an 
article at the Davenant Interest, the Davenant Institute, which is kind of a Protestant think tank. And both of these illuminated for me something that I've begun to call the spectacle of rightness. It's the spectacle of establishing and confirming our goodness, our belonging, our rightness, the spectacle of rightness. The NPR Invisibilia podcast is centered on this woman named Emily. And Emily was a member of a hardcore punk rock band. She was part of that scene. And Emily was best friends with a musician who uh, was in a very prominent uh, punk rock band. And they were on their way down to Florida. And she was in the van when they got a call from the venue saying that they decided they were going to cancel this band. Because Emily's best friend, the front man of the band, had been accused by a woman of sending an unsolicited text of an explicit nature. And everyone, of course, Emily's friend denied it, and other people dismissed it, and it was um, not really confirmed. But when Emily got home, she sent out a scathing social media post. And the post worked. Uh, he was removed from the band. He moved cities. He lost jobs. He got kicked out of his apartment, and Emily never talked to him again. A few years later, when Emily was frontlining her own band, she herself got called out on social media. Emily, this is nearly a decade earlier, had mocked a girl who had a nude photo of her stolen and posted online, and, and Emily had responded with an emoticon that sort of mocked this woman. And the post went viral. Emily was blacklisted. She was kicked out of the punk rock scene. All her friends dropped her. They made her into a non-person. In the world, the only world that she loved that was her identity, the thing that she prized above everything else, punk rock, was suddenly, permanently gone. Emily tried to disappear, but as you know, you can't run from yourself. But then NPR interviewed the person who had called Emily out. And when they asked this person about the pain that Emily had to endure, he said this, No, I don't care, he replied. I don't care because it's obviously something you deserve, and it's something that's been coming. I literally do not care about what happens to you after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, or whatever. You see, in this experience, Emily had been abstracted out of personhood. The complexity, the frailty, and even the goodness of what it means to be a human being had been narrowed down in Emily's life to one action that placed her into the outgroup and placed all those who made her story viral, who slammed her, who threatened her, who dismissed her, placed all of those people into the vanguard of rightness, the group who was in, where she had so tenuously belonged not too long ago in the past. The other thing I referenced, the article from the Davenant Institute was by uh, a guy named Alistair Roberts. And he said something within the article that caught my attention and connected to this NPR podcast. He said, when our speech about justice starts to function more as a means of competitively performing our upper middle class values and legitimating and validating our status rather than self-forgetfully turning our faces toward our neighbors in need. Something has gone seriously wrong. 
You know, I think in our digital world, that is one thing that has gone wrong. It's the specter of rightness where the image of virtue coupled to a sort of de jure righteousness that seems to be arbitrary and changing at different times for different people for different reasons, which ends up ignoring real people and even real actions for the purpose of confirming ourselves as right, belonging to the in-group, the spectacle of rightness, the spectacle of our being right. And you know, it's actually not a digital age reality. It's not something that popped up in 2007 or nine, whenever the iPhone was first invented. This desire actually is a fundamental human desire. The desire to have people say over us, you're right, you're good, you're worthy, you're in and whatever her potential corollaries are, right? Whatever the things that are said over us that tell us we're right, we're in, that you're successful, that you're beautiful, that you're virtuous, that you're smart, wealthy, powerful, happy, in, that you've had a successful sermon, whatever it is. And so we display the successes of those things, that we have done the thing that makes us right. In fact, it's no different than what we see here in Mark chapter 3 because 2,000, over 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees had this exact same pull towards the spectacle of rightness. For them, it was observance of the Sabbath. You see, at this time, careful observance of the Sabbath was the sign of your seriousness about following God. It was one of the clearest but also the strongest markers that set Jews apart from any other sort of ethnic group, cultural group, or social group. And it was also the thing that marked you out as belonging to the right people who do the right thing. Because there were lots of Jews who were circumcised, but there were not all Jews who were very careful about observing the Sabbath. So if you did that, you were part of the in-group. In fact, there were some rabbis at the time who believed that the Messiah would arrive and come only when all of Israel kept the Sabbath perfectly. So you can imagine if the promise of peace and prosperity, if the redemption of your people, the fulfillment of all of your dreams <laughs> meant keeping the Sabbath, how quickly that became a pressure cooker. And you do not, right? You do not want to be the dude that messes that up. Well, we all kept the Sabbath perfectly, except that dude over there, you know, he went out and did a little threshing, so, right? So the Pharisees, what they did is they set up an extraneous and onerous, actually, system of additional laws and regulations to protect people from accidentally transgressing the Sabbath, to ultimately and perfectly define whatever was going to be qualified for work so you didn't accidentally perform some sort of work on the Sabbath. You know, they were not really concerned about what it meant to rightly keep the Sabbath when it was connected to justice and truth and mercy. What they were concerned with was how right they were in not breaking the Sabbath. So the further you were away from breaking it, the righter you are because it displayed how serious you took God, his law, the Sabbath, 
and their arbitrary laws, actions, statements. Also, it, had, it was really convenient because it allowed you to determine who was right, who was in, and who wasn't. It was a spectacle of rightness, just like with what happened to Emily. She did this, she was in, she was out. And we could all say whether or not we are in or we are out by how we respond to what she has done. For the Pharisees, it was a spectacle that was actually uncoupled from the heart of what the Sabbath was intended to mean. And that's what Jesus exposes here in Mark 3. If you see what happens when Jesus questions them in verse 4 of Mark, Mark 3 about their behavior, whether it's actually in keeping with the goodness and wholeness, what's the right thing to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? He's getting at what is the heart of the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath ultimately pointing to? The Pharisees' silence is damning because of the emptiness of the spectacle, the emptiness of their arbitrary laws. It was all exposed. What happens for them and in this passage is that there's a broken man before them, the man with the withered hand, and he becomes for the Pharisees a non-person. He's almost an inanimate object that the Pharisees bring into the synagogue as a test case for Jesus to see if he'll break the Pharisees' Sabbath laws. And you know, they're unable to. You notice that when Jesus heals this man, you know what the Pharisees do not do? They don't even rejoice. A miracle is done before them, and it makes them angry. The Messiah does a messianic act before their eyes. And instead of receiving the Messiah, what they do on the same day of rest, on the same Sabbath, is they plot how to kill this Jesus. Because Jesus' righteousness is actually an affront to their own righteousness. Because the spectacle of their righteousness, if it doesn't actually make them righteous, then it means they're as broken and as out on the outside as the man with the withered hand. And it means what they were doing to make themselves right wasn't working. So what do they have left? But in fact, for all of us, for anyone, when they come into contact with the righteousness of Christ, with Christ the righteous, all of our spectacles of rightness, whatever the thing is that we are asking and claiming and doing to make ourselves right, get exposed for what it is, empty and powerless. Christ the righteous actually confronts the limits of our own righteousness. Jesus in the story immediately preceding this one, kind of the last section of Mark chapter 2, it's another story about Jesus and the Sabbath and the Pharisees. And Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and they're plucking off grains of wheat and kind of crushing them and getting out the grains and eating it. And the Pharisees, in their arbitrary laws, had defined that as a means of, as an aspect of work. And so they said they couldn't do it. And they said that Jesus was violating the Sabbath. And Jesus' conclusion, after citing something in the Old Testament and claiming himself to be on the same level as King David, and then he makes an even greater claim. He says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus had just said to the Pharisees that he was the one who defines what the Sabbath actually is. 
And then he's also saying he's the one that the Sabbath ultimately points to. And then here in the next story in our passage in Mark 3, Jesus heals this man, do you notice? Not with any action. Jesus has healed people throughout the Gospels in a myriad of ways. By touching, by putting mud, by putting spit, by calling out. But here in this passage, he just speaks a word. That's all he does. And he identifies himself in that moment with the God who created the world out of nothing with only his words. The one who brings creation, but also recreation and restoration. He brought rest, restoration, and wholeness to a broken man here by simply muttering with his breath, stretch out your hand, and it's done. And the Pharisees want to interpret that action as an attack against the Sabbath. But really, it's not attacking against the Sabbath. And the reason that they're actually frustrated is because it's an attack against their own understanding of their rightness. Because Jesus isn't abolishing the Sabbath here. He's actually fulfilling it. He's showing himself. He's confirming through this miraculous action what he had claimed in Mark 2, that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's showing himself that he's the one who can actually provide true rest for Israel, true rest for the world, for you and for me. And the Pharisees not only miss it, they fly so high over it, they can't even see it. And their hearts are hardened. That's the illusion here. That's Jesus says he's angry because he's grieved at the hardness of their hearts in verse 5. You know, hard hearts is intentionally meant to be an illusion for us of both Pharaoh, who is one of the ultimate enemies of Israel, right, in the Old Testament in Exodus, who hardens his heart against God and is refusing to let Israel leave and go worship God. But also the hardening of the heart's of the nation of Israel when they are redeemed and sent out by God and they're in their wilderness and they've seen God's miraculous power in, heal, in bringing them out of Egypt and yet they're bitter, they're complaining, they're hardened against God. And here Jesus is grieved at the Pharisees whose hearts are hardened in the same way. And they began to plan even in this moment Right? This is a foreshadowing here in Mark, in verse 7. The Pharisees get together with their enemies. The Herodians were their enemies. They were different, completely visions of what Israel was supposed to be. But they get together with the Herodians in order that they can begin to plan the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. Which becomes the place where Christ confirms for us the loving, sacrificial nature of his real, true, and substantial righteousness. A righteousness that he can offer to us and even lead and give to us to lead us to the land of real rest. Giving us a rightness and a righteousness that isn't our own but comes from him. And that's what the writer to Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 4. Are you familiar with Hebrews? The entire book. But are you, are you familiar with Hebrews chapter 4 and 5? It's talking about Sabbath. It's talking about rest. 
And what the writer to Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 4 is that Jesus is the culmination, the pinnacle of God's redemptive purpose of bringing rest to his people. He says, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 that the ancient people of Israel did not receive rest when they got to the land of promise. That Joshua, who led them into the land of Canaan, did not give them the rest that they ultimately longed for. That the Sabbath ordinances did not give rest to the souls, to our weary souls that we desperately want. In fact, the things that we long to call us right, the things that we ask and demand to make us good, all the things that I would already mentioned, success, power, pleasure, privilege, other people looking up to us, over to us, they're fragile. And they're constantly having to be won by us. They're a spectacle. But the writer to Hebrews says, but there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And whoever has entered into God's rest has also entered from his works as God did from his. Rested from the spectacle of proving and winning and getting our righteousness. And how do you receive that rest? Hebrews 4, 3. The writer to Hebrews says, we who believe have entered that rest. We who believe. Those who have fallen simply desperately upon the righteousness of Christ, responding and trusting to his word. Do you notice in our passage here in Mark 3, who is the one who ends up receiving true healing and rest? Who is the one who receives it? It's the only one in the passage who's the most fortunate enough to realize that they are unable to escape their own need and brokenness. It's the man with the withered hand who knows he's not right, who knows he's not part of the in-group, who knows he's on the outside, who knows he's broken. He's the one who receives the rest he longs for because he's the one who responds to Christ's words to him. And that is true for you and for me as well. You see, to let go of whatever our spectacle of rightness is, whatever it might be, we must meet Christ the righteous and receive and rest in his substantial righteousness. To have it declared over us and given to us a righteousness that's not dependent upon us and what we do, that's not temporary, lasting only as long as we're in the in-group or circumstantial. But it's the point that Hebrews is making in chapters 4 and 5, and really the entire book of Hebrews, that Christ offers us a righteousness, an eternal standing, a relationship with the eternal God, that Christ actually brings us by faith and being united to Jesus into the very throne room of God, the eternal throne room of God that's not temporary, that's not empty or vacuous, but is the reality in which this world is even based. It's his rightness, not ours, that brings us there. That's what's substantial. It's his virtue that covers us. And actually his death upon the cross is a death to all the false forms of righteousness that we run to and seek. 
In other words, just to kind of bring it all together in what I've been saying, Christ was made a spectacle on the cross to put an end to all our spectacles, that he might take our withered souls, our broken and withered hearts, and say to us, Behold, stretch out to me, hold on, take my righteousness, and I will bring you into the eternal land of everlasting life, where there will be true rest for your soul, because you will be known and loved, accepted eternally in God, the Father of all created the world and calls you in. And if we've received that substantial righteousness, we begin to take on the character of the one who gave it to us. We begin to be willing to do the acts of real substantial righteousness, even though that might put us on the path of true sacrifice. Because that's what happens here with Jesus, right? When Jesus calls out the false sort of righteousness of the Pharisees, it begins the process that leads eventually to the cross. The Pharisees begin the process of figuring out how to kill and destroy Jesus. It's the one at the end of time where both Pilate, the Herodians, and also the Sanhedrin, Ananias and, um, Ananias and Caiaphas, the Pharisees come together to crucify Jesus. And it begins here when Jesus does a real substantial act of righteousness, knowing that that is the thing, like all of his acts, that will eventually bring him to sacrifice himself upon the cross. And so we become like him when we've received his true righteousness. We are willing to sacrifice even of ourselves for the sake of our neighbors. Because it's the broken, right? It's the broken who have no fear of broken people. It's those who've been given grace who readily offer it to others. And the substantial righteousness is not abstracted, right? It's very concrete. The Pharisees abstract the man with the withered hand and sort of put him out of the mind. He's in the out group. He's not a, even a real person for the Pharisees. But Jesus concretely brings that man in. And so too, for us, as we receive Christ's real substantial righteousness, we no longer signal our virtues, but we do virtue. Um, I thought that was a really good line. <laughs> so I just want to say it again. We no longer signal our virtue, we do virtue. Scott Cairns, who is one of my favorite poets, um, wrote a poem that has always kind of gripped me. It's along the same lines. It's called Possible Answers to Prayer. And a prayer, uh, the poem goes like this. Possible Answers to Prayer. Your petitions, though they continue to bear just the one signature, have been duly recorded. Your anxieties, despite their constant, relatively narrow scope and inadvertent entertainment value, Nevertheless, they serve to bring your person vividly to mind. Your repentance, all but obscured beneath a burgeoning yellow fog of frankly more conspicuous resentment, 
is sufficient. Your intermittent concern for the sick, the suffering, the needy poor is sometimes recognizable to me, if not to them. Your angers, your zeal, your lip-smackingly righteous indignation toward the many whose habits and sympathies offend you. These must burn away before you'll apprehend how near I am, with what fervor I adore precisely these, the several who rouse your passions. Emily was easy to dismiss because she did what was wrong. Her sympathies, her habits, her actions, we could dismiss with lip-smacking indignation and confirmation of our unrighteousness. And yet, Emily is loved by God to the point of his son Jesus Christ dying upon a cross for her. Having been sacrificed for, we sacrifice for others. So that instead of calling out, what we do is we call in. Offering to broken people, all broken people, left, right, up, down, center, front, or backwards. The balm of Christ's grace and righteousness. So go. Love the withered people around you with your own withered but soul that's being restored in Christ's righteousness. With a soul that cares little for the spectacle as much as it cares for the neighbor in front of you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way in which your son concretely, visibly, and faithfully reunited the true reality of the Sabbath with its justice and mercy and goodness and the actions that he did for this man in a withered hand and even that he does at the cross and even as we'll celebrate in the moment at your table bringing us together broken people broken by our sin by sin that has been done to us and by a broken world underneath and through and cleansed by your son's righteousness. Father, I pray that you would make us a new people. Now people doing righteousness as a response to the righteousness we've received by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.